It is Palm Sunday this morning, and as Matt um, and Aaron were reading, um, we are uh, taking a break from our sermon series, and we are talking about something that is perfectly related to our sermon series, which is a king. Our series in 1 Samuel has been on how God is our true and ultimate king, and as we take a break from the series, we're not going that far away from it, because we're talking this morning as we begin to prepare for this week, this holy week, week leading up to Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, we begin begin by looking at Jesus's entry into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to John. We're going to be in John chapter 12. Palm, the, the, the triumphal entry, as it is called in the Gospels, um, and we'll put it up on the screen as well, is, is, is recounted in every one of the four Gospels uh, because it is such a big deal, and it says so much about who Jesus is and what his ministry was about. And so really, you could read this in any one of the four Gospels, but we're going to look at it in John this morning. And uh, in John chapter 12 verses 12 through 19, and we're going to look at Jesus's entry into Jerusalem the week of Passover, the week, uh, this holy week leading up to his death, uh, his big entrance at the, at the sort of the, the, the end of his three years of ministry with his disciples here on the earth. So John 12, 12 through 19 says this, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey, a young donkey, and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him, when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. The world has gone after him. We'll stop there. So uh, this triumphal entry, as we call it, is coming, as we said, at the end of Jesus' ministry here on the earth. And the reason that he comes in uh, through the gates of Jerusalem this way is to send a very clear message to a crowd that was already paying very close attention, and that message is this. I am not just a teacher who's going around giving people advice on how to live their lives. I am not just someone, another rabbi who's here for those who got rejected by all the other rabbis. I'm not just a person who cares about the poor when others don't, although he did. I am a king. And what Jesus is saying to the people and showing the people is something that he had been incredibly careful about not showing the people up until this point. You see, the ministry of Jesus, he was very careful to make sure that the people didn't know exactly who he was in his fullness until the right time. Because he knew that as soon as people became aware, especially the Jewish leaders, but also the Roman leaders, became aware of just what he claimed to be, that they would kill him. 
And so he was careful about it. He'd, he'd perform this amazing miracle to show that he had authority and power, and then people would want to go talk about it, and he would kind of tell them to be careful about what they say. Or when people would ask Jesus things about himself in situations to try to trip him up and to catch him, he'd be very careful about what exactly he would say about himself. It's, it's not because he was ashamed. It's not because he was afraid of the people. It was because he wanted his ministry to last a certain amount of time. And he knew that if he started telling people from the beginning, I am indeed the Messiah that the Jews have been looking forward to coming. I am the king who will lead and save these people from their oppressors and their enemies. That if he said that from the beginning, that he was going to have a whole lot more enemies and a whole lot more resistance. Jesus is a king and he is the greatest king. And he is the perfect king. And the reason that he is the greatest king is because he is ultimately the combination of two things that seem very different but are incredibly important. We are all about like unlikely combinations, things that go together that shouldn't go together but seem to work. If you've ever had chicken and waffles, right, you know this, okay? Like, that, like I, it feels like a couple, a couple of years ago, it was like the first time I ever heard about this, and that's not because they were new, it was just because the first time I'd heard about it, but now it feels like any restaurant you go to has this, and uh, we have all kinds of ways of mashing together two things that don't seem like they should go together, and, and yet somehow magically they do. And we love it, right? You could buy chips now that are the flavor of chicken and waffles. Uh, that's like a thing. Uh, it's everywhere. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of times in life when we have things that are, are not really supposed to go together, and yet somehow they, they do. They complement each other so perfectly, even though they seem to be opposite. And what Jesus does here as the king, who he is as the king, he is a better king than any that we could ever find and any that we could ever have. And we are a people who desperately long for and need a king. And he's a better king, not just because he's the strongest king, not just because he's the most popular king, not just because he's the most compassionate king, but because of the combination of two things in him that seem totally different and are totally what he's showing people in the way he comes in these gates in Jerusalem. We have a hard time with this idea that we need a king, that we want a king, but it is true. We want a king because kings give the people something. They give them something that the people want. More than even just security, more than even just uh, safety, more than even just opportunity, overall, the idea was that a good king brought you a life of blessedness. You experienced real blessing under a king who is good. And this is why the people long for a king. In our series in 1 Samuel, that's all we're talking about is how God's people said to him, give us a king, give us a king, and how this was basically an affront to God, even though it seemed like a reasonable request. Why? Because it's them saying to God, we don't feel like we're thriving enough. We don't feel like we're doing well enough. So give us somebody to lead us. I, I, would, I would imagine if, if I was God in that situation, I'd feel, you know, a little bit um, unappreciated. We long for a king because we want the blessedness that people are seeking, even as we read uh, about this account here thousands of years ago that happens at the gates of Jerusalem. The ultimate king, the perfect king, will ensure that our families are safe, 
They will ensure that we can work and reap the reward. They will ensure that we can thrive. A perfect king, a good king, will make sure that life actually starts to make some sense and that things actually go the way they're supposed to go. Because if you live uh, life for any amount of time, the longer you live, the more it seems to feel like things aren't really going the way that you expected that they would go or that they're really supposed to go. We want a king who can finally fix things. This is what the people were longing for. They were ready for someone to come along who could finally fix the things that were broken. And if you think this is pessimistic, then you haven't lived much life. Because we want someone who can finally fix things. We want someone who we can follow who will actually help life start to make some sense. There is this problem where the longer you live, the more it seems like you expect things to get worse down the road, not better. Do we look ahead at the future and think things are going to be even better? Or do we look ahead at the future and think, yikes. And it's experience in life that makes us feel that way. I'm having a lot of uh, conversations in my house right now about the idea of who the boss is uh, with my kids. Um, and we're having a lot of conversations with our kids. And a, a phrase that, that my daughter, who's learning how to really use her dramatic abilities for effect, is uh, I don't get to be the boss ever, even for one second in the day. That's like something that she'll yell at me with tears in her eyes, right? Like, I don't ever even get to be the boss for even one little second of the day, something like that. Like, you're get to be, you get to be the boss, and I don't get to be the boss. And I want to grow up, and I want to be a grown-up, because when I'm a grown-up, everything's going to be better, and I'm going to get to be the boss. And I'm like, listen, this is not a conspiracy against you personally, that we all decided that you just have to be miserable, and we all get to have fun at your expense, okay? In fact, I'll tell you what, when I wake up one day, and you have made breakfast for me, and you have washed and folded my clothes, and you emptied the dishwasher, uh, and then you went to work and maybe made some money so that we could all afford to have a life in the first place, then maybe you can decide what we have for dinner. I don't care. Because honestly, if I wake up and you do that stuff, we'll eat whatever you want to eat for dinner. But for now, I'm going to decide what we have for dinner and you have to eat it. Because from what I can tell, when I wake up in the morning and you've already been up, you've taken your unlimited amount of energy and applied it to nothing more than trying to get up, build a contraption to get to the top shelf where we keep the Easter candy. And that's not a person who should be the boss. Sorry. So the view as a child is that when I grow up, it will all start to make sense and things will go a certain way. Yet what I have found in my life is that, is that as I've gotten older and as I started adulting, as we call it, for those of you who aren't familiar with that term, I'm not talking about like adultery or anything. Adulting is like basically having to be a grown-up when you really just don't want to be much of the time. And this has gotten a lot harder, it seems, in COVID era. But my experience has been that like, what my grandparents described, what my parents described, and they talk about life, for some reason it seems like they're describing something that actually could work out somehow, and yet my experience is everything seems to be so difficult. Now, that's not objectively true, but that was how I remember it felt. I remember talking to my uncle once on Christmas Eve 
uh, went over to Uncle Norm's house, like we do every Christmas Eve. I was in high school. He said, hey, Eddie. That's who I was back then. He said, hey, Eddie, how's it going? I said, Uncle Norm, this is as good as it, this is as good as it gets. I mean, it's, life is so good right now. I just can't imagine it getting any better than this. And he was kind of like, I certainly hope you're wrong for your sake, you know. Uh, I had just come out of like the awkward adolescent years, and I think I was feeling on top of the world, and I thought, man, this is great. Life is great, you know. It's never going to get any better than this. It really isn't. And he was like, uh, I certainly hope it gets better, you know, for your sake. Uh, the funny thing about it is, uh, as I would then gain more responsibility, and the burden and weight of life was upon my shoulders more, it, st- it did start to feel like none of this seems really possible, right? I thought you just, you, you go to college, you get a job, you get married, you buy a house, you raise a family, maybe you save some money, you can retire. It sort of is all supposed to make sense and work out if you just put your mind to it, work hard, and do the right things. And yet, you know, I couldn't get into any classes in college, and the impacted school that I went to said it was going to take six years to graduate instead of four, and good luck finding a job when you get out, because there aren't many of those these days. And, uh, and then I got married, which that, that was really great, um, but, uh, and, and was able to get a job, but then it was like, should we buy a house? Well, that's not a real thing. People can't buy houses anymore. Uh, in fact, now, uh, if you want to buy a house, you just, you know, everybody knows you have to live with your parents for like three years, save money, and then you can maybe buy a house, right? Uh, and I remember thinking, like, didn't, did people just, like, do this? Like, it was so easy. It sounded so easy and natural, and, like, everybody just did it, and it was no big deal. Like, my parents or grandparents like, I wasn't quite like that. Maybe, maybe if we made it seem like that, sorry, it wasn't quite like that. But my expectations of life were that these things would just kind of, like, work out if I was willing to just try at all. And, uh, I mean, some of you have kids living with you right now, probably, saving money to try to buy a house because there is no way that they're going to just be able to buy one somehow. Then you start thinking about the real, big, responsible adult things in life, right? Like, am I going to retire one day? Well, you just save some money up, and then, you know, you just be responsible, save some money, and then you can retire, and, uh, you know, it'll be okay. And then it's like, uh, but, but then you start trying to think about how to do that. You go, There's, how is there any way I'd have to save this much money in order for me to be able to retire? And I won't have any, enough money to live on if I save this much money. So now I have to have more money. I seem to have to make more money. Man, I thought my expectations of things were pretty reasonable. It turns out they're not, Right. What about like now my kids, what about my kids going to college? People are telling me I have to save money for that and that's like crazy expensive. There's no way that any of this stuff, how is this ever going, how could this possibly work out, right? I don't understand. It seems like the longer I live, the older I get, it seems like things don't exactly, the circumstances don't exactly work out. The math doesn't work out in life. It feels as though something or everything is kind of against life going well. And it makes you wonder if we just had the right person in charge. Maybe that would fix everything, right? I mean, we all have the thing that we say, this, if this were different, life would start to finally make some sense. Things would start to finally fall into place. Uh, There would actually be the possibility of some fulfillment in life. And sadly, Many people, as they live life, begin to just give up on more and more and more expectation and become very, very much like accepting of just life is, is never going, I'm never going to feel fulfilled, I'll never feel happy, I'll never feel good about the future or the way things go. Their way of dealing with it is to lower their expectations to such a degree that you just kind of give up on everything. And so we say, 
There has to be someone who can finally fix these things. Or if I thought there was someone who had the ability to make some sense out of what's going on, somebody who could come on the scene and who could say, hey, I get it. Nothing seems to be working out. You're doing all the right things maybe, and you still got sick, and you still lost someone that you loved, and you tried to start a family, and it couldn't happen, and you tried to just provide for your family, and it can't happen. Here's all the things that you feel like might be stacked up against you, and a person comes along, and that person seems to have, they do something that show you that they have authority to speak into this. They've done something, anything to show you, wait a second, they might be onto something. Maybe if I followed this person, if I, if I did what this person told me to do, maybe that is what I need. We are desperate for someone, for something that is going to give us this ability to fix things the way that they seem to be unraveling naturally in life as we live more and more. Most of us are not feeling like life has exceeded our expectations. We are feeling the opposite. A true king is someone everybody wants to follow. People flock to them. Why? Is it because of fear? No. Is it desperation? No. They flock to this person because they believe that they will bring them something that they desperately want, and that is to be blessed. The people said, uh, the, the Pharisees said this. They said, look, the world has gone after him. They're saying it resigned. These guys have been fighting against Jesus, and they're like, we cannot win with this guy. No matter what we try to do, people keep listening to him and following him. The world has gone after him. We're making no ground on this fight. And the reason that people have gone after him is because Jesus has done these miraculous things that have shown people that he is on to something, that he speaks with some degree of authority. Jesus has brought a dead man back to life, and word, it says here, has gotten out about that. And that alone is enough to say, I think this is the person that I can follow. Why? Well, as the people said, um, and, and we read about here in John, in verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hosanna does not mean, good job, you're great, I love you. Hosanna is a word that means save us. So the people are saying, save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The reason that people will follow a king is because they believe that that king can lead them to true blessedness. In the Bible, they talked about this. They called it shalom, as Matt said. Peace, fulfillment. The first thing that we see in the kind of king that Jesus is is he is a king with the, <clears throat> with the power and the authority to fix things. He is somebody that we can finally trust and put our confidence in. There is no greater mistake we can make, it seems, than the mistake of thinking that a spouse, a child, a boss, a job, a president 
has the authority and the ability to really, truly fix things in the world that we're experiencing. But we are desperate to find that, and we are desperate for that. The Jewish people lived under Roman occupation. They really liked the idea of somebody coming along and helping them realize a reality, that, a life that they had never been able to experience up till this point, a life in which they could just be free. Jesus has the power to do that. You ever go somewhere, like a restaurant or something? Well, you ever looking at reviews, let's say you look up reviews for a restaurant, and the reviews say, this restaurant is under new management. What does that mean? That means they've had a rough go for a while, and they're trying to send the message to people very clearly, uh, we're under new management now, give us another try, right? We all know what it's like to either work somewhere, go somewhere, experience something that is under poor management, and to long for new management, to long for better leadership, to long for one who, uh, you know, because we know that that actually can change things so much. Jesus is the king that we want because we want a king who will finally fix things. We want someone who will bring things under new management and in doing so will actually fix the mess that we're experiencing in this life. But there's something else about Jesus that we see here. We see as he comes in, he is riding on the back of a baby donkey. And that is not what you would see from a king who has authority and power. This is called a uh, juxtaposition. This is the great, uh, the great thing that everyone talks about when they talk about the triumphal entry here as Jesus enters the gates of Jerusalem. The fact that this powerful king with authority who's coming in is doing so in the most humble and meek, embarrassingly small way possible. And while all these people who have heard about him are coming from in the city, and all the people who have heard about him are coming in from out of the city, meeting him on both sides, that he recognizes this, he is like, I am fully going for it. Now I'm going to make it clear to everybody exactly who I am and what I'm here to do. And so he says, go and get me a baby donkey. And I'm going to ride that baby donkey into Jerusalem. Because nothing says power and authority. Nothing says this guy is going to fix everything than riding it on a baby donkey. Not exactly. See, there's this other aspect of Jesus that seems completely opposed to the first one. We see the power and the authority of Jesus, but we also see the meekness, the humility of Jesus. And we go, how in the world can those two things exist? What makes him the perfect king, the one that we desperately need and really want, is his ability to combine those two things. They say this, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
You see, there was this thing about the Messianic prophecies that when they talked about the one who would come that would save God's people, the one that people were looking forward to to finally bring them into this sense of true peace and shalom and blessedness, every, they, they, these prophecies they always made kind of, like a, kind of like, a, like a left turn at one point. And they would say something like this. Uh, you know, they talk about, you know, a, a, about, a, about a lamb sort of being sacrificed. They talk about a suffering servant. They would talk about, you know, one who would suffer. They would talk about one who is humble or meek. And, and so and, and it, it would confuse people because you'd think just when you're thinking it's going to go this way, it goes this way. You're like, wait, what exactly is this saying? And, and yet people tried to not really focus on that, apparently. They tried to focus more on the power and the authority. And so what they were waiting for, what they were hoping for was a military leader to come on the biggest, most impressive war horse, imagine. And to say, oh, I am the king with authority. And what I'm telling you with my authority, now that you're listening, now that you know I can raise the dead and I'm somebody to be taken seriously, is we are going to fight. And we are going to conquer. And we are going to create a world in which you can finally be happy. Because a good king, a king with authority, is going to fix the circumstances around us. And they're going to make it so that we can all finally be happy. Because we're basically good people, right? We just need somebody to fix all the other stuff around us. Wrong, that's not the case. What made Jesus a great king is that what we need, not what we want, but what we need is a king who can finally fix us. We are so desperate and longing for a king who will fix everything else. But what we truly need is a king who will fix us. Because the problem is not, what Jesus is saying to the people is this, in the way he is coming in, is he is saying, you want me to save you from the Romans, but who is gonna save you from yourselves? I know you believe that once the Romans are taken care of, you're gonna do just fine, but you're not. We think about this every election cycle, right? Every election season. We think, who will save us from this candidate? Who will save us from this party? And the question is not who will save us from this party. The question is, when we get at things the way that we want them, who on earth is going to save us from the mess that we will create then? Because of us, right? Is it possible that what we need is not our world around us to just be fixed and other people, but what we need is for someone to fix us. Jesus has meekness and weakness and gentleness in him. He is meek and lowly, Zechariah 9.9 says. He comes in riding on this colt of a donkey. The key to Jesus' power is his ability to humble himself before God and to be weak by choice. Jesus has raised the dead. He could come in levitating, shooting lights out of his eyes. He could use laser beams to kill all the Roman soldiers in one fell swoop. It would be crazy and amazing. But he does not use his authority and his power to do that. He uses his authority and his power to choose willingly to be humble. Why? Because he is showing the people that in the kingdom of God, the only thing that is really going to fix things is us taking that posture. Man, there is nothing like 
scarier, I think, than a bunch of people convinced that the right leader is going to fix things. Because that is a bunch of people who are convinced that they're right and they're okay. We just need to fix everything else out there, right? The lie that we're so desperate to believe here is that we just need our circumstances to get straightened out so we can live the life that we have always wanted. The more that you expect that the right leader, the right ruler is going to fix your problems, the more delusional you usually are about your problems. A group of people that are outraged at their circumstances around them is usually a group of people who think they're going to thrive under good circumstances. If you think a president is going to fix what you are dealing with, if you think better parents would have given you way more of a leg up and a better life now than the ones that you were given, if you think a better job or a more understanding boss or a more inspirational boss would fix things for you, if you think that a more loving spouse who truly appreciates and embraces you for the way that you are and who you are, if you think that more appreciative and grateful kids Better economic conditions would have fixed things. Then you are delusional about the real problems that you're dealing with and you're facing in this life. One of the things that um, I was reading an article recently from um, a psychologist who wrote a book on estrangement between parents uh, and adult children. And surprisingly enough, when this person wrote this book, it became incredibly popular and sold a lot more copies than they thought they would. Because as it turns out, there is an increasing number of adult children and parents who are estranged from one another. We've actually seen, I I think, this is just kind of my opinion, but I think we've seen COVID exacerbate this by taking relationships that are kind of on the cusp of that. And with COVID and restrictions and safety, uh, that being used as a way almost, it seems to like make it official, right? Because I'll talk to people who are like, I haven't seen these grandkids, I haven't seen these kids, or I haven't seen my my parents in this long. Um, But then as you talk to them more, you find out the relationship was somewhat strained to begin with, right? And what this author realized after they wrote this book was it became incredibly popular. He was writing a second book, and I was reading this article that this author had written about their book, The Rules for Estrangement, basically how to deal with this as a reality in your life. He's writing this article um, in the publication The Atlantic. And essentially what he's saying is in a time when parents are trying more than ever to devote more time, more of their time, and more of their energy to parenting well giving up bigger chunks of their personality and life, it seems, to like parenting really, really well over other things. The rate of estrangement in adult relationships between parents and children is on a dramatic rise. And he says that this is due to two things. One is real, actual, objective trauma that has been caused by members of families that are do bad things to each other. I mean, that's the idea of estrangement, right? Is that it's like that parent, that child, they are unhealthy. They have done something so terribly wrong that we cannot have a relationship. It has to be severed. But he seems to indicate in this article that the majority of these strange relationships are not that clear cut. It's actually the result of people feeling a a renewed sense of freedom to sever relationships in their lives because those relationships don't bring them the kind of life that they want. 
what he ultimately says is this. He says, we are freed to surround ourselves with those who reflect our deepest values, parents included. We feel empowered to call on loved ones to be more sensitive to our needs, our emotions, and our aspirations. This freedom enables us to become untethered and protected from hurtful or abusive family members. The way that we would say this is, uh, life is short, don't let other people drag you down. Surround yourself with people who will love, appreciate, and be for you. People who will help you live your best life and not drag you down with their negativity or with the baggage that that relationship brings. I had a rough relationship with my dad growing up, and as I have reflected back on it, and I've looked back and thought a lot about, um, well, even why our relationship is so much better now than it was when I was 18. I moved out of my parents' house when I was 17. Uh, We both disagreed, I think, my dad and I, on why things weren't going well between the two of us, but what we could agree on was that it would probably go better if we weren't around each other anymore. So he's like, you can move out early if you want. And I was like, great, you know. So I did. And there was nothing like me in my 20s trying to explain to myself why everything was the way that it was. The reason we have a better relationship now is I began to do the work of fixing things in my 20s, like I said, and I became aware of two things. The first of these two things was this, that my dad came from a family that was so, like, messed up, that for him to overcome that to the point of even being a present parent at all in my life was like this Herculean effort that I had never fully appreciated at all. I was very quick to judge a parent not looking the way that I expected I deserved that they should look and was never really aware or even interested in being aware of exactly how much this man who loved me had done to just get to the point of being a present father at all. The other thing that I realized that changed everything for me was just how unbearable I was to live with when I was a teenager. And I'm not saying every teenager is. I'm sure if you're a teenager, you're awesome and you're really great to live with and your parents love living with you and they really won't want you to move out. But, in fact, they'll have you come back and stay there to save money to buy a house. But what I realized was my early passionate years of being a Christian, I was very focused on what other people were doing and how other people were living. And I was very very aware of other people. And I wasn't so self-aware. And as I began to go through the process of God saying, how about some self-awareness for once? I started to realize, yikes, I was not an easy guy to live with. And I was right on the cusp at this point in my 20s of, of, of looking for reasons to completely cut myself off from people that I thought were not good in my life and not helpful in my life and didn't even share the same beliefs that I did. And I came to realize instead that the problem was me looking for a reason as an excuse to remove a relationship from my life because I thought that's what would fix things. What this author ultimately says at the end of their article, and this is a non-Christian talking, he says, we are all flawed. We should have that at the forefront of our minds when deciding who to keep in and out of our lives and how to respond to those who no longer want us and theirs. 
You see, the point of this is simple. We don't actually need a king who's just going to fix all the circumstances around us, who's going to make all the people around us better, who's going to make all the families better like we want them to be in some way. We need a king who has the authority of God so that, that we can have confidence in him. So we'll actually listen to them. We'll actually follow them. And we'll actually submit to that king. When that king says to us, as a part of my kingdom, as one of my followers, I want you to get on your knees and I want you to look inward at yourself and repent. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. There's this huge thing that happens after he dies and is resurrected, and the disciples go, oh my goodness, all this stuff that he said and did is starting to make so much sense. That's why he went in on a little baby donkey. Because the greatest thing that Jesus could accomplish in his power as a king, he accomplished by dying for us. We thought that was weakness. We thought that was bad. We thought we were trying to ignore that stuff. Like, oh, maybe this is something not great. Okay, it's okay. He's got his flaws. We all have our flaws. He's not perfect. No, he was perfect. And what they saw was that the greatest, most powerful things that Jesus would accomplish were the things that he accomplished in weakness. Because what Jesus is saying to us is, as your king, I am here not to conquer the Romans, but to conquer death. I'm here to conquer that thing that is eating away inside at you, who thinks that you can live in the perfect world and everything will be fine again, but you won't. Who thinks that you can remove the relationships from your life that aren't the ones the way you want them to be, and then you'll be fine. Because you won't. He is the king that we want, and he is the king that we need. And this is what we see in Jesus, the one that can finally fix us. Who will liberate us from death? Jesus says, you will still have your guilt, even when the Romans are gone. You will still have that fear of a meaningless existence. You will still have the sin that you go back to again and again, and you will still, no matter what any king does for you, you will still have enough fear inside of you of the things that you cannot control to hurt yourself so badly. We need a king who will finally fix us, and this is who came in riding on that donkey. Ultimately, what Jesus the king shows us is that Without him, we are nothing, and how much we need him. And not nothing, as in we are worth nothing, we are valued nothing, but without him, we have no hope whatsoever. I don't know why, but I just have been thinking this week about how funny it would be to follow that donkey around on Monday, the the Palm Monday donkey, we'll say. This guy gets up, he is in the best mood he's ever been in his life. He is like, I am killing it right now. Today, uh, things are great for baby donkeys right now. Normally, people don't like me. Normally, people ignore me. Normally, people like, get out of here. But I am on top of the world because I had a great day yesterday. And for whatever reason, people were loving me. And then he goes, walks around the town, tries to say hi to people. This is a talking donkey. Tries to say hi to people. And they're like, get out of here, donkey. Never wanted to see you in the first place, donkey. Go back to your stable, donkey. And he comes back. He's like, what is the deal? I was so popular yesterday. 
Well, because it wasn't you. It was Jesus, that guy who was riding there on your back. I think that uh, we have a tendency uh, to want a king who is going to make us independently and ourselves great. But Jesus is the king who will constantly be there pointing us to the fact that it is in God where our strength comes from and our value comes from. If If you're here today and you are not a Christian and you have never made a decision to follow Jesus, to put your faith in Jesus, if you perhaps see the authority and the greatness and the power in him as a king who can maybe fix things, maybe you're here at church because you're like, oh, I see how this stuff makes sense. Or maybe I see how maybe we need more of this. Or, or you know, I just, there's something that, the fact is, there is something that God has done in my life that, that I cannot ignore that has shown me that I got to take him seriously. Because that is what the signs and wonders of Jesus ultimately did. And I'm here. But if you haven't chosen to follow him, to put your faith in him, to trust in him, if you're waiting for this king who will save, but not the other part of it, then what you have to know and you have to see this day on this week as we lead up to Resurrection Sunday is that the king that you need is the one who will fix you, who will help you be healed and be restored and be better. That is what he is interested in doing. And the first step of that is to humble yourself and to say, I repent. The problem is not the circumstances of the world. The problem is not, I I should have had better parents. I should have better kids. I should have a better job. We need a better president. If only these things weren't happening right now with everybody and this virus and everything else, that, that the real discontent and issue, the real reason that it feels like the future is not full of hope is because of what's going on inside of me. To recognize that and to repent and to say, God, would you forgive me for that? I want to find my life in you and not in myself. But you could also be here today and you could be a Christian. You could be somebody who has chosen to follow Jesus. And yet it has been so long since you have thought he is here to fix what's going on in my heart. Because you've gotten so used to the idea that what he's really here to do is to fix the world, is to fix everybody else, is to give me a really good idea, maybe, maybe a firmer platform than any other to say, I'm right about the way that things should be. That is not the king that he is. That is not the king who came into Jerusalem. If so, he would have been on a big old impressive horse and not on a baby donkey. But he came into Jerusalem that way to show the people that it was through weakness, it was through humility, that we would ultimately thrive in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we have been talking for months and months about this idea of a king, one who we can follow and trust, put our trust in. Lord, we all... um, go back and forth on believing that if we could only be the boss, if things could only be the way that we wanted them to be, if circumstances of life would be different, then it would be okay. But Lord, the truth is that you have come, Christ came to usher in the kingdom of God, not a new, better kingdom of man. Father, if there is anyone here today who has not made the choice, the decision to follow Christ, to simply repent of sin and put trust in him, then my prayer is that 
right here, right now, without letting a single other moment go by, that they would do that. And if that is you, if you're sitting here and if you are hearing this and if God has spoken to you because he has brought you here today to hear this, then would you just pray this, Father, I see that there is sin in my heart and in my life that as easy as it is, as much as I want to believe that it's just all these other things outside of me, that the truth is that I do long for these things that I cannot have. I do desire and have fear about control and things that I cannot control. God, I confess to you that the problem with the world is not out there, but it is the thing that lives in my heart. Would you forgive me for that, God? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Would you give me the power through your spirit to walk in new life starting today and for the rest of my life to trust that the only hope in life that can be found is in Jesus, not in myself and what I can accomplish. Father, I pray for those of us who are here today who need to hear that word, that message, that we do not simply need better circumstances new leadership, different things and factors in our lives. That what we need is a king who can actually defeat death and the power it has over us. Would you give us the freedom to worship here and now in light of that good news, God? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.